Noah Charney, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. It should be, yeah. I, um, I'm a big fan of the topic, though. I'm very much an amateur. So it's good to, uh, good to be with something of an expert. Um, I guess the first question I just want to start off with is a simple one, but uh, one that I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in or I'm really interested in your answer for. Why do you love art and how did you first fall in love with it? Well, that's a good question that I don't think gets asked enough. Um, the way I fell in love with it was living in Paris when I was 16 years old. And so I went, I had a sort of weird high school experience. I went to an old boarding school in the U.S. called Choate, and they had abroad yeah. programs like universities do. And I went on a study abroad program in lived in Paris when I was 16. And it was just the best time ever. I loved it. It was like a big sleepover party. There were 15 of us uh, Choate students, and we were each living with a different French family, speaking only French there. And every afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m., we would go to a museum on a field trip with the art history professor. And it's mm. much easier to be engaged with art if you're in person rather than you know in a, in a dark hall watching a slideshow. And right. I thought this was great. But at first, at first, I thought, this is cool, but I want to be Indiana Jones. And that's actually what I wrote my entrance essay to go to college about. Um, and then yeah. I realized that archaeology isn't exactly like the movies. Um, a lot of dusting of unrecognizable things and a little chemistry. And I thought it was not for me. So art history felt like the, the easier step forward. It's also good because you wind up studying everything, you know, three-dimensionally, 360 degrees around an object. So if history is about events or people, this is about physical objects and the stories behind them and the context for which they were made and through which they existed. And so to me, that's fascinating. And it's sort of a cheat because it means you can study everything um, through these objects without having to pick a subject. Right. Right. Um, it's funny that you you bring this up, the fact that you were... 16 in Paris and that you went to Choate. I had a very similar story. I went to Lawrenceville. I'm actually going to Lawrenceville okay. later today to to teach. Um and Sweet. when I was 16, I moved to Paris alone. Um and just sort wow. of lived there. <laughs> um over the summer with my freshman That's year awesome. summer. Wow. I went there. <laughs> I think nominally I was there to like take some like French cinema classes or sort of French literature classes, like a bunch of smattering of French classes. Uh, but the truth of it was I, I didn't spend that much time in class. I spent most of my time in bars and cafes and museums. The, the Musée de l'Angerie, uh, I absolutely loved. That was one of my first entrees into like scandal and intrigue in the art world. Um, so that was cool. Um, but it's funny to hear you. That's a really weird coincidence, <laughs> man. That's wild. Yeah. I honestly, maybe I should have read up more about you, but I had no idea. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's funny. Um, uh, I guess the, and, and I agree with what you're saying about seeing art in person. It is very much a different, uh, different kind of experience to like be there with the art and conversation with the art, like rather than looking at it on a screen um, or looking at it uh, in the in the printed pages of a book. Um, or it can, or sculpture in particular, I've found, can really just like stare you down, and capture you. 
Um, but anyway, absolutely. Uh, I want to uh, go ahead. Sorry. There's a, there's a vibe that you get when you're in front of a work of art that you don't get through the slides. And I always say that some of the digital images that we can have access to now are remarkable from a scholarly perspective. Like I have a whole book about the Ghent altarpiece, which I've seen in person many times, but when you're in person, it's behind this, you know, bulletproof glass and you can't get close than about a meter and a half away. And there's a billion pixel digital image that's freely accessible online. And in it, I was able to spot a figure I had never seen in person. And I wouldn't really be able to see in person. So sometimes it can make breakthroughs, but you just don't have the vibe. And what I like in particular is an art pilgrimage to see a single work of art that I'm excited about that I have to make a journey to. So all these great universal museums are cool, but then you're seeing, you know, you can see 2,000 objects in one space. Um, but I like the the single, you know, destination object that is in some remote church that I have to journey to. That's my favorite way to approach it. Yeah. Where Where is the ambassadors hanging? The Hans Holbein, the younger painting with the, that's, the skull? That's at the National Gallery in London. And when I did in a London. master's in, at the Corto Institute in London, I was visiting it all the time. And also my favorite painting, Bronzino's Allegory of Love and Lust, is in the same museum. So that was like my, my hometown uh, favorite for for more than a year, I would go in many times a week. It was really special to be able to spend so much time there. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing it gets me thinking about is I have no idea whether this is true or not, but someone once told me that the Mona Lisa, which I've had the great fortune of being able to see in person once, was like changed three times a day. It's sitting there behind the bulletproof glass. I don't know if it's the, you know, whether the Mona Lisa or something else, the paintings ever rotate between two like high quality replicas or forgeries and the real one to prevent against like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, not the way you're thinking of it, but one thing that surprised me is I gave a talk at the Albertina in Vienna a couple years ago in support mm-hmm. of my book, The Art of Forgery. And I was all excited right. to see the Albrecht Dürer drawings and paintings. Oh man, extra credit. You got it. Very good. So, so I was giving a talk in support of this. And I was all excited to see the Durer drawings and watercolors. And I went to see them in the gallery. And when I saw them, I thought something was funny, but I wasn't quite sure what. And then I found the wall copy, which was sort of hidden away. They were being a little bit sneaky. And it explained that um, only once for six months, every four years, are the originals on display. And at all other times, they have high-quality replicas because prolonged exposure to light would deteriorate them. So I had Mm. been all excited to go speak at this museum to see the very works that were not on display. And I actually came back a few years later because I live now in Central Europe, not that far away, when there was a special exhibit. And every four years, people come to see the originals, which are otherwise in storage. So that sort of thing happens, and museums should really be quite transparent and overt about it, and they aren't always. I'm not sure I would have Mm. bought a ticket to the Albertina had I known that the things that I wanted to see were only there in replicas. But in terms of what you're talking about with like rotating Mona Lisa, that that, that doesn't happen. That's that's made up. Um, But it makes for a good story. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I remember when I was a a teenager, not long before I... um... Uh, jetted myself over to to Paris. Um, I used to watch White Collar. It's a TV show with with Matt Palmer, uh-huh, yeah. and it's it's you know there's yeah, all sure. kinds of like conspiracies and scandals and such. And but it it was like 
obviously it's exaggerated and over the top and, you know, more than anything fictional. But um, as a teenager, it was a great entry for me into learning who Modigliani was and to learning what a codex was mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. Sure. Um, you know, just watching it as, as, as a 15 year old. So I, I hope it's a on show I've never seen, here. but everyone yeah. tells me I should see it. I, I can't. You can't would believe probably I like it. it yeah, you might I'm like sure. it. It's a little like cheeky and, you know, maybe beneath your pay grade uh, or uh, I don't know how much of the uh, <laughs> I love that stuff. Creative and creative embellishment you could live with. Um, but okay. uh, it's I enjoyed it when I was a teenager. Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, the minds, motives and methods of master forgers, as you have subtitled The Art of Forgery. So the tagline in the book, sort of on the, I mean, I have it. I have the book. The tagline in the book is that, you know, the world wants to be deceived. So let it be deceived. We love to be fooled. We love to have, you know, something pulled over on us, to have wool pulled over our eyes. And then, you know, to have like the trick revealed or maybe not revealed. I'm just curious, like, why is that? Why do we like to be fooled? Not necessarily just in art, but why Why do we have such appreciation for those who can, like, pull one over on us? Well, in, I think, every human culture um, and mythology, there in the pantheon, there's a trickster, whether they're human mm. or semi-human or divine, a Loki-like mm. figure. Um, right. And they're a source of, of fear combined with admiration because you don't want to be the one who is fooled in a way that ruins you or embarrasses you. But if you are hearing about someone else's embarrassment or ruin, <laughs> we like that. <laughs> and then yeah. we also like it if we um, are volunteering to be fooled because we're in a situation where we know that something is going to happen that's unexpected that's going to invert our expectations. We also right. have um, an admiration for magic, whether you are a believer in magic or whether it's about like sleight of hand and illusionism of a stage magician. That yeah. um, undermining of our expectations and creating a situation that we can't immediately explain away is pleasurable. And mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out a puzzle. It's the same reason we like detective stories and whodunits. Um, as long as we're not the one being killed, then we think it's intriguing to try to solve these puzzles. And so I think yeah. it's part of that. Um, you know, I own some forgeries. I don't know if you can see on my wall over here. Um, there's <laughs> two engravings that are kind of fun. One on the left actually appears in the book. It's the um, it's the Marcantonio Ramondi forgery of an Albrecht Durer print, um, yeah. and the other one is Albrecht Durer's Melancholia One. Um, an original one sells for you know six figures. This is not an original one, but it was made from the original plates, and it was printed by um, the German state in the 1930s. And these are available yeah. for more like normal human prices, but it looks exactly the same as one that was printed during his lifetime. Um, and many of these have been right. sold as originals. And this will cost you, I don't know, 
2000 and the original will cost you like 200,000. So it's a complete, <laughs> it's a completely yeah. different ball game. And for me, that's fun to have because I know the story behind them. If I had paid 200,000 for that one and it turned out to be worth 2000, I would not be happy sharing the story with you. So there's this, uh, appreciation for, you know, others being fooled, particularly when there's a class divide. So this is something I talk about in the book, but uh, especially in cultures like England, where there's very much uh, a system of social classes, um, it's hugely popular mm. to see the elite cut down to size and shown as being foolish. And right. that Absolutely. is the narrative in so much of the, the um, yeah. media representations of forgery stories. So that, that's basically yeah. schadenfreude, well, I, the German term for, <laughs> you know, pleasure at the, at the misery of others. Yes. Yeah. Happiness at, at other things, fortune. I think of, you know, Figaro, the marriage of Figaro is just like ridiculing, ridiculing the upper class, the nobles in a very mm -hmm. like clever, creative way. And to your point about the 2000 versus 200,000 point, I, I would, or, I don't know if I would take issue with that. I have a counter example. I know a guy who, uh, you know, he had, he had a Picasso on his wall. Um, and he, he was having a, a cocktail party. This, this story was passed on to me from some, someone who's very close to me. He, anyway, he had a, he had a Picasso in his living room and, uh, they had a cocktail party one night. Um, you know, they invited a bunch of friends and one of the guys who came there was like, a Noah Charney type, like a real like <laughs> art world motherfucker. Like this guy knew his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if he was actually an authenticator, but he was, you know, he was, uh, he had a seat at the big boys table in the art world. Um, and they're, you know, sitting around drinking scotch uh, or wine or whatever they were drinking. Um, and he casually leaned over to the partner of, this person that I know and said, um, Hey, listen, I'm not going to ruin the party. I'm not going to bring this up, but you might want to have this Picasso authenticated. Like you might want to, um, mm. have it looked into. And the girl, you know, naturally ran straight to, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. ran straight to the host and, and, and said, uh, her, her partner and was like, uh, her boyfriend, husband, was like, hey, um, you need to hear what this guy just said. Um, and the guy's like, no, 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 I don't want to. The art guy was like, no, 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 I don't want to yeah. um, ruin the party or anything. But the guy's like, no, it's a party. We're drinking. Tell me. And he goes, look, that painting is a forgery. I can tell you right now it's not real for X, Y, Z reason. Um, mm -hmm. And the host just laughed a little bit, chuckled and said, listen, for what I paid for it, it's real to me. Um, like I like looking at it. Mm. I paid a shitload of money for it and it accomplishes all that I want or need it to accomplish. Uh, you know, so on some level, I don't give a shit whether it came out of Picasso's hand or not. I bought it branded as a Picasso. Uh, but now whether it's real or not it hangs in my living room. I see it every day. I like looking at it. So I'm not going to get it authenticated because it doesn't matter to me. That's a good story. And I've heard some similar things. A lot of people will 
one hand, uh, he sounds very confident. A lot of people will be basically ashamed at having been fooled or at finding out mm. that they were fooled, so they'd rather not know. Um, but it reminds me of a, a, a case study of the, the Vacher Van Goghs um, in, in a most famous trial, early trial, um, that involved forensic investigation in Amsterdam um, in the 1930s with a, a series of paintings ostensibly van, by Van Gogh that um, were brought into question because the people who acquired them um, had uh, conflicting opinions from the two leading Van Gogh scholars of the time, a guy named H.P. Bremer and a guy named Bart de la Fay. And if the experts had agreed, then there would have been no question, but they couldn't agree on five of these Van Goghs that came from this mysterious collection. Um, and in the end of the trial, it was determined that all five of them were forgeries, and one of them was owned by a wealthy American collector named Chester Dale, who has a wing of the National Gallery in D.C. named after him because he donated to have it built. Um, and he said, as long as I'm alive, this is by Van Gogh. And that, that was the end of the story. He didn't want to hear about yeah. it. And you have similar right. things, you know, with like the Shroud of Turin, which four yeah. separate scientific labs have identified as a 13th century painting, a forgery meant to look like a religious relic. Um, and a 13th century bishop had said this is a forgery. But, you know, it doesn't stop people yeah. from believing in it. Millions of people come to visit. So the power of belief can overcome um, scientific fact. We see, I mean, we see this just beyond the art world. We see this, you know, in in politics, in in science, yeah. in belief, in yeah. creationism, Absolutely. you name it. So this is this is a human thing that we don't like to be proven wrong. We don't like to have demonstrated that we backed like the wrong horse in the race. So we're willing to right. be very stubborn to um, to prove to ourselves that we were right all along. Right. This dichotomy is interesting, too, between, like, on the one hand, wanting to be fooled in certain circumstances, and on the other hand, stubbornly and obstinately refusing to admit when we were wrong. Maybe, as you said before, mm -hmm. we like it when it happens to our buddies, but not when it happens to <laughs> ourselves. Um. I think too of you know this idea of real to me, like it's it's real to me. Or someone says that's not real, and I go, you know, it's, it's real to me, and that's all that matters. Um, there's this. Uh, I've done a lot of research on like uh, or writing about research, thinking about con men, um, imposters, mm -hmm. people who sort of assume the identity of other people like Martin Guerre, for example, is a French, a French guy. Mm. James Arthur Hogue was this 28 year old dude who like, was a serial petty drifter. And he like pretended that he was a teenager and applied to Princeton using bogus credentials in the nineties. And he got in and killed it. Um, and took seven classes at a time, got straight A's. And it was interesting. Um, and there's all these other uh, like Ivy League composters, Akash Maharaj is one, uh, Long Grammar is another. But um, on the Hogue, on the subject of Hogue, David Samuels is he's a is a writer. He's been on this podcast actually. Uh, he he wrote this book called uh, well, it was a New Yorker article that became a book called uh, The Runner, because um, James Hogue was also on the track team. Um, and one of the lines in in the book was that. Uh, he was a ghost who like became a vector for the myths and dreams or whatever of, of everybody else. Uh, and when he was exposed, he went back to being a ghost. So I was writing about this, thinking about this. And it's like, 
people say James, you know, James, his pseudonym at Princeton was uh, Alexi Andre Santana. People say, well, Alexi was never real. Alexi never existed. But he did exist in like the hearts and minds of people who knew him. And a painting that's fake does exist. This fake Picasso does exist in my close friend's living room. Um, and it's real to him. So this question of like what's real and what's not, maybe it's a personal, it, it, there is no universal. Th one thing that's real to one person, like a religious belief, for example, my religious beliefs, not that I have too many, can be very real to me, but not necessarily to you. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, forgeries especially, they are all actual objects. Although um, the, the latest variations are, are things like NFT forgeries, where the original isn't actually an object, <laughs> the, and the, right. the forgery isn't either. But, um, but yeah, in most cases, traditionally, they are objects. Some of them are very beautifully done. Um, and they have stories to them, too. They have biographies. They've been believed in or not. Um, and they have a, a value, especially ones that are not mechanically reproduced, but are made by an artist. Um, right. They are original objects in, um, in derivative imitation of the style or an exact work by another artist. But they're still original, and they can be very beautiful, just like... You go to museums, you see art students copying um, works in the museum, which is legal to do. It only becomes illegal if you try to commit fraud by passing it off as something more valuable than it is. Um, those are all are all legitimate objects, too, that can have their own stories, and people can love them or hate them. So, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I think, too, of American Hustle. Have you seen the film? I did, yeah. And David O. Russell, yeah. And there's, there's, mm -hmm. there's that line in the film. They're looking at a painting that's hanging in the, in the, in a museum, and it's like this. You see this painting here. People come from all over the world to see this painting, but uh, it's a forgery. And the line that really sticks with me is, you know, people believe what they want to believe, which is very true. We convince ourselves mm -hmm. of all kinds of bullshit all the time. Um, <laughs> we're like, of course, we're the best con men because we're able to con ourselves into. Like you're the best con men are able to con themselves and in, into in, in, believing their own bullshit. It's like people believe what they want to believe. Um, anyway, we can move past. This is all very like high level, surface level stuff. Um, maybe time to to move into some more focused, a more focused line of mm -hmm. questioning, um, which relates to what motivates a person to actually go and become an art forger other than the obvious monetary benefits you've written about the whole like chip on your shoulder paradox or the whole like you know redemptive or redemption aspect and then there's the like getting back at the art establishment for somehow rejecting you um but uh you know like one 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 thing that that sticks out to me, this guy David Samuels, who I mentioned before, also wrote a, a long piece for the New Yorker about the the Pink Panther diamond thieves. They steal you know precious gems all over Europe, um, and one of their motivating fact these were all guys who came out of like the Yugoslav wars, um, like ex Serbian paramilitary guys, and one of their motivations for like plundering. I mean, that's not really the appropriate verb. They're not plundering. They were stealing from like high-end jewel stores but one of their motivations for like plundering 
these jewel stores in Western Europe was that like Eastern Europe got the butt end of the stick. So there's this, uh, or they felt that they were like left out of the, the growth that happened afterwards. So there's this like getting back at factor or this like chip on your shoulder thing. Um, that's not forgery at all, but it's just, you know, I'm thinking about like the redemptive aspect. So no, why, why would a person who can, you know, sell ice cream or t-shirts or books or coffee, decide to go or, you know, become a teacher or do anything else, decide to go out and become an art forger? What are the motivations? Well, I looked at about 150 case studies for this book and chose to include about um, 60 of them. And out of all the case studies I looked at, the vast majority had the same psychological profile um, and initial motivation for turning to forgery. Now, most of the people who turned to forgery became forgers, meaning that they did forgery regularly for an extended period of time because they were making money off of it. But the initial motivation for almost all of them was a passive-aggressive revenge against the art community, which they saw as this other, this sort of private club to which they weren't invited. Now, why they saw that change from person to person um, some of them were um, not admitted to an art academy. Some of them were unable to make a living as an artist creating their own originals. That's the story for most of them. Um, and decided mm-hmm. that they wanted to demonstrate how great an artist they really were. Um, uh, another person uh, was fooled by an art gallery that bought an object he found at a flea market for a medium amount of money, and he was quite pleased, but then he saw that he had been tricked and they sold it for a huge amount of money afterwards. So all of this has to do with a sense that I'm not welcome at your party. I would quite like to be considered part of like the art world, and I'm going to show you how foolish you are to have overlooked me. Rejected me. And right. this this passive aggressive revenge has a sort of double a double whammy. So the first one is if I create a work of art and you the experts think that it's by a famous artist, that lets me rationalize that I must be as good as the famous artist in question. And it also right. lets me laugh at those stupid experts who can't tell the difference. Yeah. Now there's a logical disconnect between the two. If they're so stupid they can't tell the difference, then it discounts the value of my being thought of as having created something that a famous artist did. Right. But I don't think they're they're thinking yeah. that that deeply. So that's the initial, you know, high that they're getting. Um and this re- revenge that's passive aggressive where they're the only one in the world who knows about it is not sufficient for a lot of these forgers. Um, it's like if you had, if you actually have the Mona Lisa in your living room and the original is there and you snuck a forgery into the Louvre and you can't tell anyone about it, not everyone is satisfied with that private victory. And so an right. astonishing number of forgers we know of um, volunteered that they were forgers or um, they basically... I, if you if you put them on an analyst couch, they let themselves be caught because the actual completion of their revenge only comes when they go public because yeah. the foolishness of the experts has not been revealed 
The experts haven't been made foolish to anyone except the forger. So, yep. you know, I always say that my history of forgery book is a history of failed or voluntarily failed forgers because we know about them. And there's probably another yeah. world of forgers who we don't know about because they've been satisfied with that private victory. Right. That's that. Yeah, there's an old, it's not even a joke. I would say to my friends sometimes is a, you know, cocktail napkin line in a bar like who's the greatest art forger of the 20th century and you know some people who are into art would like rattle off some names and i'd be like no 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 we don't know who it was because <laughs> it would never come yeah yeah that, that um, exactly yeah yeah um but it's 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 interesting to think like what what motivates a person i mean do you think that this is a particularly healthy outlet for their resentment for having not been let into the club <laughs> yeah it it depends who you ask you know um i mean hitler was also not let into the club he wanted to become an uh, an art student or an artist in austria and he had a rather more destructive outlet so i'll I'll take the the lesser of, of evils you know the the, the exactly. passive aggressive nature of the revenge the fact also one of the reasons that i write about art crime all the time but our forgery is it's in in its own book is because it tends to function independently of organized crime and the people involved right. in it tend not to be career criminals um, and haven't been involved in other sorts of crimes. So from a criminological perspective, it's distinct, it's much less serious. Um, and mm. it's more like, uh, I think I have a line in the book that I'm always quoting, um, the forgers are more prankster than gangster. And right, they think yeah. of themselves as like, pulling the wool, it's like a, like a jackass episode, pulling the wool over yeah. <laughs> the eyes of the elite um, and right. not really doing any significant damage. Um, and criminologically, right. that's sort of true. Usually it is wealthy individuals or institutions who are suddenly in possession of something that is worth much less than they thought, but it's not going to be their ruination. Right. Um, and the forgers are nonviolent, and because they're not usually linked to other crime types, it's... Um, it's more innocuous when for, mm. when it comes to crimes. It's, I guess it's a crime that it's like okay to find intriguing. And if you're going to go for a beer with a criminal, you'd probably rather go with a forger than, you know, so, someone more objectionable. Right. Like Hitler. Uh, I mean, you say like lesser, it's the lesser of two evils. I don't necessarily see it as, as an evil thing. But I mean, to your to your point about crime... Art, or maybe I'll ask, to what extent does forgery play into the, the sort of criminal underworld of like, you know, whether it's real art or art forgery, you know, funding, I don't know, uh, like bad shit, like terrorism or people hiding money and keeping the art in like, whatever, free ports. And, they have to, and then or it's like a, it's just another kind of asset. It's another way of moving money. Um, so to what extent yeah. is art used in like bad shit, like terrorism or I don't know, drug trafficking or whatever? <laughs> um, art crime is a significant funding source for bad shit. The forgery is much less so. What so, do you mean, um, art crime? Forgeries... Art what, what is a funding source for bad shit? Sure. So when I teach the history of art crime, I look at different categories, forgery being just one of them. So the, the most uh, serious thing... Um, in terms of the extent of it, 
um, how difficult it is to police, and how it funds bad things is illicit trade in antiquities. Right. So this is usually taking antiquities directly out of the earth in um, unofficial excavations that are not supervised by archaeologists. Um, and that is by far the biggest problem. The objects that are taken have never existed before for modern humans, so we have no idea what to look for. And they can be sold on an open market or a gray market like online auction houses um, with uh, forged um, paperwork that make them appear legal. Um, and then they can be sold for something approaching the full price. And there have de demonstrably been a funding source for terrorist groups. Um, ISIS is the most obvious example. They were, you know, showcasing it all over the internet. Um, but we've known about this since 2007, at least, when at the Interpol Stolen Works of Art annual conference, there was a presentation given um, about the links between art and terrorist funding, particularly illicit trade of antiquities and fundamentalist Islamic terrorist groups. Um, there's a really good documentary that shows how this works behind the scenes called Blood Antiques um, by Blood a Belgian Antiques. company called Journeyman Pictures. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, back in 2000, well, back in so 2000, in 2004, um, Der Spiegel in Germany broke the news that Mohammed Atta, who was one of the architects of the 9-11 attacks, had initially flown to Germany with Polaroids of looted antiquities that he was looking to sell. And when he was asked what he wanted to sell them for, he said to buy an airplane. And one of his early iterations of the 9-11 attack would have been to buy airplanes with funds generated by selling looted antiquities and then to crash those planes into buildings. And the hijacking option was, was a later iteration of the same plot. So it is very bad. And the majority of art crime, meaning art theft and illicit trade in antiquities in particular, setting aside forgery, um, is... It involves organized crime groups at some point in the life of the crime, whether they're actually doing the stealing or uh, smuggling or fencing. Um, organized crime groups are almost inevitably involved to the point where it's easier to count the instances where they're not, where you have a lone thief, someone who's kleptomaniacal, or a pair uh, like a couple working together who are not otherwise linked to organized crime groups. That's much easier to name those instances because almost everything is linked to organized crime um, in some capacity, meaning that it's funding and fueling other activities, criminal activities that are more objectionable to the average person on the street, like the drugs and arms trades. Um, and it wasn't yeah. long ago that the U.S. Department of Justice and Interpol were quoting that art crime was the third highest grossing criminal trade worldwide behind only the drug yes. and arms trades. They've since taken that statistic down. Um, and in various footnotes, it now says we don't have enough statistics to be, uh, we don't have enough empirical data to be certain about this, but suffice to say it's among the highest grossing um, and mm. has to be taken seriously whether or not you like art because of its importance in funding criminal activities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there a direct link between actual, I understand like, you know, doctoring the paperwork, like altering the provenance or, or, you know, creating phony badges of, of, of legitimate sale or whatever. Um, I mean, that's bad. The Nazis did that left and left and right. Um, that, that most of the stuff that was sold off in Lucerne in, in 37, I think, 
ended up with with fake paperwork down the line. But um, is there an overlap, Noah, between uh, uh, like fake paintings, like forgeries, and the bad shit, or is it is is it just that like art itself is sometimes used as a vehicle of of, of transfer of asset transfer? There, there are not many cases where um, an identified forgery has been used for um, money laundering or something like that. What, what happens more often is that art, legitimate art, is used to launder dirty money. The, right. the forgery aspect is is more to do with insurance scams, for example. Mm. But um, if we're talking about s- s- serious financial crime... Um, Let's say that you have uh, stolen, um, you've robbed a bank and you have all this cash sitting around um, that's, uh, you know, hot. Um, and you need to convert it into something that's of roughly the same value, but that is not hot, that doesn't have traceable serial numbers. And so what you can do is you can buy real estate or art. And art is harder to seize, easier to hide, easier to move. So you yeah. go and you spend, you know, a million in cash on a painting and you have a painting legitimately. The buyer is not asking where you got the money from. Maybe they should. Maybe in some countries there's legislation that says over a certain amount you need to. But in most cases they don't. Um, and then you have this painting that's of the same value and you can move it around or hold on to it or you can sell it. And then you're presumably getting um, non-dirty money for it. So that sort of stuff happens with um, alarming regularity. It happens to for individuals, companies, banks, they invest in art. Where the money comes from that they're buying the art with is sometimes questionable. Right. No, it's it's uh it's fascinating and, and you're absolutely right. A painting is much easier to move than a big house somewhere. Um mm-hmm. or any other form of real estate. No, have you read this book? Uh, are you familiar with the book Provenance by Lainey Salisbury and Ali Sujo? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, and, I uh, read it, it. it's about what, John it Myatt. About? Okay. It's about John Myatt, who's one of the case studies in the art of forgery. He's a really lovely guy. Um, I bet he would be on your show. He does this sort of thing quite a lot. He's really friendly. He or his wife writes back to their website email address. Um, <laughs> And uh, provenance is basically telling his story. But the term provenance, not all your listeners may be familiar with, it means the documented history of an object. So anytime that object has been referenced in archival material, documents, photographs, um, that provides proof of its existence, and the more provenance that you have supporting the long-term existence and uh, authenticity of an object, the more reassured buyers are that it is what you claim it to be. So basically, if if for hundreds of people, everybody thought that the painting in question is by, let's say, Raphael, um, and it's been written about in books and cited, and it's appeared in exhibitions and in gallery catalogs, that would reassure a potential buyer today that it's authentic. So when an object comes onto the market, then the researcher who is assigned it will look for provenance, will look to fill in as much of the backstory as possible. 
And the cleverest forgers will use a version of what I call the provenance trap. And there are five versions of it that I talk about in the book that Mm. are basically taking advantage of the fact that scholars are hungry for provenance to fill in the backstory of an object that they would like to sell. And they tend to overlook details that they probably shouldn't if the story behind the object is compelling enough. Yeah. So this book is the story of John Myatt, who used one version of the provenance trap um, and is a is a very interesting, charming, talented guy. And you showed me the cover of my book. Well, um, he very kindly let us use his forgery, we'll call it. He calls them genuine fakes because you can now pay him a lot of money to make you a work of art in the style of any artist you like. The um, the mirror image on the cover, one yeah. is Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring and one is John Myatt's girl with a pearl earring. I thought it was the same. Aha, uh-huh. <laughs> that's great. Okay, that's fun. Yeah. yeah, turn it upside down and you'll see that it's it's pretty good, it's a, but it's not it's, exactly it's a, it's the same. It's a bit different. You know, I, I, if I were painting it, maybe I would have made a few different touches, but I'll accept it. It's, it's passable. <laughs> it's passable. Um, how did the, um, I'm just kidding. Um, how did, uh, it's, it's very good. How did the Nazis fake provenance, Noah? Well, the, the Nazis well, are its own tell complicated. Me about, t- tell me about like the, the loose, the, the sale in Switzerland in Lucerne in 37 and in all of this? Um, well, prior to the war, um, the Nazis uh, embarked on a campaign to gather what they called degenerate art, which was art yep. that was um, created um, by people who were considered enemies of the state, um, which, you know, Catholics, Jews, Blacks, Freemasons, uh, you name it. Um but they also use this policy to basically capture and seize um, objects that would be valuable to the government in funding the anticipated war effort. And they were seizing objects from German citizens, um, not just people who were enemies of the state. And some of the objects were collected and kept. Um, Hitler had a huge stolen art collection. Hermann Göring, his second in command, did as well. Um, but some of the choicest pieces that were of artistic importance but did not match the pro-Aryan agenda of the Nazis were put on display um, at a moving exhibition called the Degenerate Art Exhibition. And these objects were intentionally curated and hung in an unflattering way. And written on the wall when you walked in was was a German equivalent of a phrase, yeah, saying, um, this is the sort of thing we are saving your children from. And it was meant to parade around of things that, that the Nazis found objectionable. However, right. they also recognized that though they found them objectionable, that there was a market for them. So, so it they was, were... It, um, they were... Because this was put up next to the Great German Art Exhibition. It was like all the Aryan yes, statues yeah, and shit. Yeah, there but was, there there was the, the good... Is, the good one and then the bad one and then there's the yeah. dichotomy. But you're saying yeah. secretly, like, this was actually, like, a marketing tour to, like, drum up interest in the shit that they planned to sell afterwards? It, it, it was more It was more afterwards. I don't think it was intended f- for marketing, but what, what but happened was, was the... Uh, there effect, were effect, right? Like, um, yes, absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, and it was clear that they were going to be getting rid of these things. And many objects, artworks were destroyed. But quite hypocritically, they recognized that, you know, they shouldn't exist in our context. But if someone wants to pay us for them, they can. Um, and so there was uh, a series of auctions. Um, and the most famous one you're mentioning was in Lucerne, Switzerland. Um, where the objects were sold to anyone who wanted to buy, and there were a lot of American buyers, which is quite shameful. They knew where it was coming from. Superficially, paperwork was rigged, so it didn't look like it had been illegally seized from private citizens, but almost all of it had been. So there was only the most superficial veneer of subterfuge in terms of forging provenance for that auction house. Everyone knew where they were coming from. And some people just said, this is too good a deal to pass up. And there was a concern that objects that weren't sold would be burned. And they right. did burn thousands of works of art that didn't sell, but they tried to sell them first. And they tried to sell them abroad. Um, and a lot of Americans bought them. Hmm. Well, this raises another question of restitution, Noah. So let's go down the chain three or four ownerships later. Mm -hmm. Piece of art is plundered by the Nazis or by, let's just use the example of the Nazis. The Nazis, you know, go into the private art collection of, you know, of, of a Jewish guy in, you know, somewhere in Germany or Paris or wherever. They, they take his art, right? And then, you know, it's sold off with what you've described as a veneer of authenticity on the first go, right? Like the buyer probably knows this is some, this is shady. Like this is probably stolen. Then it gets yeah. sold again a second time. And the second time, you know, there's more provenance. And then it's like slightly more legitimate. Like the second buyer might honestly not know that mm -hmm. this was stolen from a Jewish family. And then you go to a third and a fourth and a fifth buyer. You end up encountering this dilemma where the eventual, like a legitimate sale was made in which somebody paid a lot of money for something that they thought was real and they thought didn't have blood on it and they thought was, you know, legitimately acquired. But in the painting's history, you know, two or three or four ownerships ago, it was taken in an unscrupulous manner. And now it's hanging in, you know, somebody's living room. So you end up with this very difficult question of restitution. Should the painting go back to the descendants of the Jewish person from whom it was stolen or because a legitimate sale was made or it's past the statute of limitations, depending on the country. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm Jewish. My, my, my family, my grandmother was a German Jew. She fled Europe in the thirties. So I, I'm conflicted on this. You know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question to, to answer. How do we go? Or if it ends up in a museum, right? There's also the argument that. It belongs in a museum because this painting, this Vermeer, this whatever is so great that it would be a crime to keep it in someone's private collection, private living room when it should be. It's so great that it, it should be on the public for everyone to see. But how do we go about thinking? Uh, what are some ways to think about restitution? I know there's no good answers. Sure. It's, it's complicated. Absolutely. Um, 
There's a reason why most of the restitution cases begun only in uh, began only in the internet era, so basically the mid '90s on, and that's because that was the first time that people could easily see where objects were without having to have the fortune of stumbling on them in some collection. Um, and in most cases, the statute of limitations only begins when the victim's descendants become aware of the existence and location of the object in question. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is seizure during um, a conflict, which is different from theft during times of peace. And they don't have the same statute of limitations involved. They they may have it for a criminal trial, but this becomes a civil issue. So nobody's going to jail for it. But the question is, is a family that has it now or a museum legally obliged to return it to the descendants of the original owner? And it's complicated to do. There are lawyers that specialize only in this. Um, but the descendants have to be able to demonstrate that the object was in their possession um, and that it was removed during the Nazi period. This is the most frequent example, but there are also um, others with with other people or other state factors removing it um, from private hands. So if they can, you know, point to a photo of their great-grandmother's living room with this painting in it and then point to the painting in a museum collection— um, then they have a very good case. Most of these cases are settled because museums don't want negative publicity. And there's a real phobia uh, in the art trade of dealing with objects that have a question mark in their story during the Second World War. I worked briefly at Christie's, the auction house in London. And while I was there, I helped with the sale of the William Foyle book collection, Rare Books. He was the founder of a bookshop in London, and it was a three-day sale with over 3,000 lots. And out of all of them, there was only one object that they, Christie's would not sell, and it was a single book with a Nazi stamp in it mm-hmm. um, because they didn't want to um, accidentally sell something that was going to be reclaimed. So if it's a civil issue, the descendants can bring a lawsuit against the holder of the object. Um, Nobody's going to jail for it at that point, um, but they can go to court. Again, normally they'll settle, um, but they have to be able to demonstrate that the object in question was in their collection and that it did disappear um, during, during that questionable period. They don't usually have to know the exact terms um, of uh, when it was taken and by whom. That's something that is often necessary for the restitution of archaeological objects that were taken um, and claimed as cultural patrimony to be restituted. But from the perspective of the buyer, each of those buyers of the object legally has to prove two things if obliged to do so in court. One is called due diligence and one is called good faith. Mm -hmm. And these are two legal terms. Due diligence basically means that you tried proactively to make sure that the object wasn't on any stolen works of art list. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's e- relatively easy to do, even if you don't try too hard, unfortunately, but that's step one. And you have to be able to prove a good faith purchase, meaning to demonstrate that you genuinely thought the object was legitimate, which mm-hmm. again, it's, it's very hard to, to catch someone who should have been doing this, who didn't, Um, But those are the two terms you need to be able to demonstrate. So for restitution cases, you know, I'm, I always think it's best to return them um, if it's uh, demonstrable that they were looted um, 
uh, taken illegally during a conflict, particularly in the Second World War, which is so sensitive. Um, uh, but quite often, you'll get a situation where some deal is made, like the object will go on long-term loan to a museum, or the object will be sold and uh, museums have the opportunity to purchase it, and the purchase price is divided among um, descendants, something like that. So it's rare that objects are completely disappearing into someone's living room, never to be seen again. Right. Right. Nothing, nothing ever disappears. Or, I mean, do things, or do things disappear forever? Or you think they always resurface? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I have another book. I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to suddenly whip it out because you have it, but it's another book I published with Fiden called Museum of Lost Art. Okay. Um, and, you know, things do disappear sometimes stuff. forever, but sometimes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes they come back almost miraculously. And that, that whole book is an illustrated history of lost art. Um, each chapter opens with the story of a famous work that was lost and was almost miraculously found again. Um, as a point of entry into talking about objects that were actually more important when they existed than what happens to have survived, but for various reasons they were lost. Some yeah. of them, in art history, we have the term lost versus extant. Extant right. means we know the location. Yeah. Lost could be like anything else. It could be, we know it was destroyed, we think it was destroyed, it was stolen. But what I like about the term lost is it implies that it could be found again. But right. just one example that comes to mind, um, there's a, a one of two versions of Van Gogh's portrait of Dr. Gachet mm. was bought by a Japanese collector, and he said he loved it so much he wanted to be buried with it, and it hasn't been seen since he died. Now, hopefully, he didn't literally mean that, and one of his friends said, oh, it was just a figure of speech, but it's still missing. So, you know, hopefully these things will, will resurface. If an object was stolen, it, it inevitably comes back to the surface at some point, but it may take a few generations. The mm. only thing we don't want are objects actually destroyed. That's irrevocable. And that fortunately happens rarely, but it happens enough that um, there's some, there's some uh, depressing stories related to it. Fascinating. Uh, w one thing you do write about, though, is wine forgery. Um, and when I saw mm -hmm. sour grapes um, for the first time and learned who Rudy Cuneumon was, I was like drawn into all this again because I'm all interested in like con men and, um, you know, uh, impersonation and imposters and postures. Um, and I saw this film and I was like, wow, like this is sick. And, you know, you've written this book on wine forgery. So I, I, I guess one, one, question i have here is is there any chance that like rudy was innocent or i don't know innocent no one's ever innocent of anything but like it it just seemed curious there were a lot of curious details about the rudy cornea story why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the rudy cornea story and then some of the things we don't know about uh about this guy well th this is another one where um the, in the Wine Forger's Handbook, I write mostly about Hardy Rodenstock. Tell us about um, Hardy Rodenstock. And so the Rudy... Okay. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is one of the problems is there's so many of these case studies that... Um, uh, one I don't mean to put you track. on the spot. Uh, like. <laughs> no, it's no problem. Um, I, I've read about the Rudy Carnayawan story, but I don't remember the details off the top of my head. The Hardy Rodenstock one is, um, is uh, related to the so-called Jefferson Lafitte... Um, 
bottles of wine, which were uh, ostensibly from the 18th century, and they're bottles of Lafitte that Thomas Jefferson had ordered um, when he was president. Um, and there seemed to be an infinite number of these. And Hardy Rodenstock was um, a major character. <clears throat> he actually invented the concept of different shaped wine glasses for different types of wine. That was something that people hadn't done before. It was a marketing uh, gimmick that he came up with. And he made a fortune um, uh, with uh, working with Rydell, the company that makes high-end glasses of wine. Um, and he... Uh, kept on selling these, usually one on the market at a time. He sold one to the heir of the Forbes family. Um, he sold um, a couple to different um, millionaire wine collectors, all of them for at least six figures, which in the world of rare wines is significant. And one of the things that's complicated about it is that there are almost no people in the world who have ever tasted wine that comes from before the 18th century. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Tasting it is really the one of the only ways that you can authenticate it. But yeah. in tasting it, you're basically ruining the value by opening it, and then you're consuming <laughs> the value um, by drinking it. So it was complicated thing to authenticate. There's um, a wine expert named Michael Broadbent who was the leading expert in pre-1800 wines um, who had tasted some of these and thought they were authentic. Um, but there wasn't a big point of comparison. Um, the case became an issue, and it was written up in a really fun book called The Billionaire's Vinegar. Um, and, <laughs> and it's a great story. Um, one of the buyers got suspicious. And this is often how forgery cases um, begin. Investigations often happen after a purchase is made um, when, for some reason, someone gets suspicious, a buyer, and launches their own investigation. Um, and the buyer hired a former FBI agent to look into it. Um, and they found it suspicious that Rodenstock seemed to have an infinite number of these Lafitte Jefferson bottles that he kept on offering on the market periodically, and he would never say how many of them he had. He claimed that he had found them um, uh, when uh, in a property of his, he had found a false wall, and they were there was a case of them behind the false wall had been walled over um, in Paris, which is possible because a lot of valuable wine was hidden when the Nazis invaded Paris, because a lot of valuable wine was stolen by them, along with art and, and all sorts of things. Um, and in the end, the FBI agent was able to determine Rodenstock's guilt because he found that... Um, uh, from a forensic perspective, the engraving on the Jefferson Lafitte wine bottles had been made with an electric dentist's drill, which did not exist, of course, um, when Thomas Jefferson was president. Um, right. So this was the big scandal prior to the Kurnayawan scandal. And this is mm. the one that I wrote about primarily in this um, book, The Wine Forger's Handbook, which was, right. was fun to... To write, one of my favorite little fun facts that I didn't know about and is a little bit creepy is um, all organic material on the planet contains a radioactive isotope that did not exist on planet Earth prior to 1945 and only existed because of atomic bomb testing and the two atomic bomb explosions on Hiroshima and um, in uh, um, at the end of World War II. And this atomic isotope is radioactive. It doesn't harm people, but it's an all-organic material that essentially grew after 1945. 
It's in all of us. It's in all the food we eat. Um, and it's detectable in wine. And so if wine contains it, it means that it was made from grapes that grew after 1945. And there have been some very valuable 18th century bottles that contain this radioactive isotope that didn't exist on the planet at the time. So sometimes you come around these fun facts that's a little bit creepy <laughs> that we're introducing new radioactive isotopes to the planet, but there you go. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, I just love this stuff. So, um, I mean, yeah, me too. Great <laughs> stories. I love these. I could, I could listen to these stories indefinitely. Absolutely. Is there, um, is there a whole lot of overlap that you find between wine forgery and art forgery? I guess wine is a form of art. But um, um, I, m there's overlap really only in the victims. Um, there's a certain rich finite <laughs> number of people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the, the art critic Jerry Saltz once said he thinks there's probably only about 1,500 people on the planet who are really proactive players in, in buying art. And um, if you think about it, that's not very much. Um, and they all 15? know each other. 1500. Oh, 1500. Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. yeah. They all know each other. Um, they're playfully or not so playfully competing to, to, with their collections and demonstrating their wealth, conspicuous consumption at the highest, most elite level. Um, and art is one of the things they go after and rare wine. Right. Um, and so, uh, there's overlap among victims. Um, and there's, you know, there's, large-scale, like, mass commercial wine fraud, just like there's mass commercial olive oil fraud. Um, there's some... Actually, okay, so the, the, the reason that I got to be well-known is, is uh, somebody wrote an article about me having founded this study of art crime as a field of study in a New York Times Magazine article. Mm. And he later wrote a book called Extra Virgin, which is about forgery in the olive oil world and how the olive oil is almost oil never expensive? what it claims to be. Uh, it can be, yeah. What do you mean? I mean, the oh, difference between well, how expensive is like, a bottle of olive oil? It's olive oil. Well, it's um, it's uh, it's going into mass quantities, and uh, the mafia runs much of Italy's olive oil trade. And what? the difference in price between extra virgin olive oil or something labeled as such and normal olive oil is considerable. So it's not like you have a single bottle going for a hundred thousand, but you might have um, a, a million of, yeah, bottles a going for worth of twenty each <laughs> instead of when it actually should cost five each. Yeah. So Fuck. there's also forgery for you know mass commercial wine. Yeah. Um, much more often than there is like a rare bottle that costs a hundred thousand dollars, because frankly, people are going to look harder at a hundred thousand dollar bottle of wine and wonder. Um, should I be paying this? But they're not going to really think twice if they go to the supermarket and they're going to pay 20 bucks for extra virgin olive oil from Calabria in Italy. And they're not going to know that it wasn't like cold pressed and there's actually only like 60% olives and this sort of thing. Yeah, not many people will know about that. So yeah, the, the, the forgery is everywhere. But I mean, we see that on social media, we see it in like political campaigns. We see it, you know, every aspect of life there are frauds taking place. Sometimes we're good at, at spotting them. Sometimes the 
committers of the fraud are are basically too clever for us and only a real specialist would be able to spot it um but it's a part of human nature to try to 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 swindle people yeah. some people do it for money that's usually the outcome some people do it because um they get an adrenaline rush from doing so um but for me as long as i'm not the one being swindled i think it's fascinating and i love reading about it and writing about it yeah it's i mean it goes back some level to the the schadenfreude thing um yeah 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 well i mean especially when it's uh when the person on whom the 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 joke is laid is somebody that has very little in common with us like some gazillionaire yeah. person exactly um, the olive oil thing fascinating yeah You're check right. it yeah. out who would who would who would you know investigate well, arrival. Next time I go to Woolworths, which is the largest, I think it's the largest supermarket chain in Australia. I'm going to demand to speak to the manager. I got my blonde Karen hair and I'm going to say, I would like to see the provenance of this olive oil. And she it, is man. going to say, what are you talking about? And I'm going to make a big fuss or get escorted out. Probably, probably banned. But you know what? It's for the integrity it's, it's the for the greater good. It is. It is. <laughs> it is for the greater good. Thank you so much for for coming on the show, Noah. My pleasure. Have yeah. a good one.